plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware. If you will turn with me, we're in Mark chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 28 through 34. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. And if you're new to Evergreen or you're visiting from a wedding, we are so thankful to have you with us. We've been going through the gospel of Mark. And we've kind of went a little bit slower than at least our usual through the gospel of Mark once we got to chapter 12. Because right now Jesus is being bombarded by a bunch of different questioners. We're all trying to get Jesus to stumble. Some, the Pharisees, their tactic was to try to get him in trouble with the political leaders. The Sadducees thought they had a obscure point of theology that they could trip him up on and get him to stumble. And this morning, we're going to have a little bit different sort of questioner. A lone scribe who has seen how good Jesus has answered all their questions. So he thinks he's going to bring a question of his own to kind of figure out who this Jesus guy is. Let's look at his question, starting in verse 28 of chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he has answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely or had his mind about him, He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Look at that. We've arrived at the end of our questioning of Jesus. They finally given up. But we're going to see next week that Jesus isn't really done with them yet. He has some questions of his own that he would like to ask them. But before we get there, look how different of a situation was this was. Mark doesn't even say that he was asking him 
or testing him like the rest of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Matthew does. Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 says that this scribe was in fact testing Jesus. But he was testing them in a different manner. And his entire response was different than the Sadducees or the Pharisees. For one thing, after he asked his, his question, he said, you're right, Jesus. He saw that he answered the, the other questioners good. And the word he uses there is good, Jesus. Good, teacher. You answered well. It's as if the scribe was listening in on the sidelines, seeing all these different disputes, seeing how Jesus was constantly coming to conflict with, conflict with the religious leadership. And this scribe was wondering and had a question in his mind, which maybe hasn't struck you. We just assume that Jesus teaches the truth, that Jesus teaches in line with the scriptures. But if you are just sitting there and watching Jesus contradict all the teachers of the law, you might be thinking to yourself, this guy must be kind of different, probably has a wonky theology. And this scribe then offers him a test, not of some intricate question, not trying to get him into, a, into trouble, but instead trying to just see, is he orthodox or not? Is he orthodox or not? If you haven't been in church too long, you might not know what that word orthodox means. It just means right. Ortho means right. Right teaching. Right worship. Correct. And how do we and how did Jesus gauge whether or not something was right or not? They both were on the same page. You go to the scriptures to figure out whether someone's teaching is right or not. But I, the really big thing, the really big point I want you to pick up on is the title of this sermon and where he leaves this man when he ends that conversation with questions and answers. His conclusion to the man who agrees with Jesus who knows what is right and what is true. His conclusion is, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He's near, but he's not in the kingdom of God. You know, there seems to be this universal understanding in our culture, at least if anyone can agree on anything about God, it seems like everyone's in agreement that God is love. So much so that everyone who's not a Christian or maybe an outside observer would say, you know what, all, Christi all Christians, all, you know, different cult groups, all religions of the world, they all believe the same thing and teach the same thing, that you basically, you got to love everybody. And then they're offended at certain points, especially at when people are seeming to be against other people or telling other people that they're wrong about something. You hear phrases like, what was it, Lynn Mirandes? 
Lynn, the guy who wrote Hamilton, he was interviewed in New York, standing up for LGBTQ rights. And he was asked about this issue, about people saying that certain sexual relationships are wrong. And his answer was pretty simple. He just said, love is 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 love. I don't know how many times he said it. What was his point? His point was there should be something that we all agree on. That we need to love people. And that's what I really want to get at this morning, at least at the substance of what Jesus is teaching. Are all religions the same? Do they teach all the same way to God? Is love love? What we're going to learn this morning is that there is right belief, and that matters. But it's not enough. That right belief, orthodoxy, gets you close but not in. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 and 17 both say that unbelievers before the Gentile nations, before they had the law, that they were far from God, far from God's grace. But by the blood of Christ were brought near. And in his sense, what he was talking about near was in. We have these two things that we have to do then. We need to see what is true, what is right, and why is that important. And then we need to see how do we move just not being close to the kingdom of God, but being in it. And we can look at that through the, the phrase that this is this man's coming to him for. And really here what we say is like the first step from being far away from the kingdom of God. And that's the outline of this sermon, by the way. I know it's not in there. We're going to be taking about three or four steps to getting near to the kingdom of God, starting presumably from far away. What's the first step that you need to take to get near to the kingdom of God? I think a good way we can start off is an honest question. That the first step that we can take to getting near to the kingdom of God is an honest question. And he asked it, he, he was responding in verse 28, because he saw how good Jesus' answers were. This is something none of the other opponents of Jesus were willing to admit. And he asked them a very legitimate question. Which commandment is first? Here in the ESV, translated first as the most important. But here, basically, he's saying, which one makes it number one on the list? Which one comes first? Because there's so many different commands in Scripture. How do we rank them? How do we know which one has the greatest priority? And Jesus answers the best way that anyone can by turning to Scripture. I don't know if you noticed this, but he quoted there, if you were listening to what Steve was reading, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and what is the most important commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and then you should love the, God, love the Lord your God with everything that you are. But it starts off with an honest question. And you notice that Jesus gives him an honest 
answer. Despite the fact that this man is testing Jesus, trying to figure him out, he gives him an honest answer. And this man's response will see that he was giving an honest question because his response to Jesus' right answer was basically to affirm it and say, you know what, you're right. And he adds to Jesus' Deuteronomy chapter 6, and also we'll get there, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He adds to that some scriptures of his own. Isaiah chapter 45, he quotes to Jesus, and he quotes to Jesus other confirming scriptures like Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, to affirm and firm up that, yes, Jesus, what you said is right. You know, I think that what he's doing here in this man's response is something we should pay attention to. Charles Spurgeon said of this text, some people are much too big to get through the heaven's gate. That's kind of a funny image, isn't it? What makes someone too big to fit through the gates of heaven? And he says, they are so wise that in their own estimation, they are not willing to be taught even by infinite wisdom. Their judgment is so accurate. Their intelligence is so clear that they will not submit to be instructed even by him who is the very wisdom of God. They think that they have within themselves the power to draw an infallible distinction between right and wrong, between brush and error. I don't know what brush means here. I'm going to assume that that was meant to be truth. That that was a typo. Between truth and error. And they will not even allow the Almighty to dictate to them to be the arbiter of their lives. That's how someone can be too big to enter the gates of heaven. You won't fit through the gates of heaven if you have such an inflated ego that your head's too big to fit in. You won't fit into the gates of heaven because you're not willing to listen. And if we're honest to ourselves, if the Holy Spirit did not open the eyes of our hearts to see the truth of God's word, our ego would be inflated too. You see, that's the problem also with that love is love statement. I'm going to refer to it a couple times. But one of the problems is He wasn't willing to let his definition of love be challenged, to let his intuition that maybe, possibly, God knows right and wrong better than he does. Maybe, just maybe, God knows what he's doing and that the commands God has are loving people and that to go against God's word and God's way is not love, but is actually hate because it leads to people's destruction. So the first step to the kingdom of God is an honest question. The second step, though, and this one's very important, it's getting the right answers. The second step to getting close to the kingdom of God is getting the right answer, and Jesus gives it to them. 
And Mark includes a statement that the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, do not include when he's addressing and answering this questioner. Jesus doesn't start off with the commandment. Did you notice that? He starts off with this statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He starts off with a confession of faith. I'm not sure how long this tradition has stood throughout church history, but if you read your Hebrew Bibles, at least one that you get today, and one's even from about a thousand years, from about thousand AD, you would see that this verse is one of the only verses in the entire Bible that's like double the font of everything else around it. They doubled all of a sudden, right when they got to this text, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, which is being quoted here. They doubled the font to show the significance of it. That the Lord, that Israel, Israel has this one God and this God is the only true and living God. This statement is absolutely foundational for understanding the answers that Jesus is going to provide. And it's also absolutely foundational to understanding why not all religions teach the same thing. They might all generically have some affirmation of the goodness of loving other people, but how they define that word love is radically different. And oftentimes, as it was with Lynn Mirandez, holy bitch, I'll just say Lynn since I don't know his last name too well. Lynn's last, his definition of love had no definition. So love is love is true just because it's kind of a nonsensical statement. Yeah, A is A, B is B. What does that mean? He defines it with the God of Israel. And it makes sense because of what he's about to say. He's about to say, you shall love the Lord, your God, with everything that you are. See, the most fundamental, the very first commandment is that we love, not just love for love's sake, but that we love the creator of the universe, who, guess what? We would not know who he was if he didn't reveal himself to us and didn't first love us. See, that's the distinction between true religion and false religion. Every other religion that claims to worship some God or maybe even the creator God. But if it's not the God of Israel, if it's not the God who's revealed himself, they're worshiping a figment of their imagination. And it shouldn't surprise us that when they're worshiping this figment of their imagination, they find that this figure seems to agree with all their preconceived notions. And the man, the scribe, adds a really great qualifying statement to this. He said that he said truly, and he adds his scripture, that he is one, Deuteronomy 4, 35. And he draws from that, that there is no other God besides him. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 45, verse 20. When he's talking about other religions, 
And Isaiah says something really offensive. Talking about the surrounding peoples, he says, they have no knowledge who they carry about in their wooden idols. They keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is no one besides me. See, this is the danger that comes from this matter. It's so important because, you know what? We're given here a pretty easy demarcation in humanity. You're either in or you're out. Do you see the danger there? That being near might count in horseshoes and hand grenades, but it doesn't count in the realm of salvation. Because if you love any other God, if you're looking to anyone else to save you, they don't have the ability to save you because they don't exist. The creator of the universe says so. If anyone's going to know about any other gods, it would be God himself, the creator of everything. That's the significance of this. And he says, now the command. What is the command? The command is that they love the Lord their God. And it says with all, but I really like the picture that Jesus is painting here. He says all in the sense of whole. Holy love the Lord your God with a W, not an H. He says, love your Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and with your whole mind, and with your whole strength. And Jesus adds that phrase, with all your mind, to the Deuteronomy text, probably to clarify something that was, not, that was true in Hebrew, but not so true in Greek. When I talk about love the Lord your God with all your heart, you probably think the same way the Greeks do, which is the heart being the center of your emotions, your loves, your desires. When Hebrews use the word heart, they were referring to the center of your being, your thought life. Your deeds, yes, your desires and feelings, but all of it coming out of the same source, the heart. We would probably rephrase that and say the mind. Loving the Lord your God with everything that you are, every thought, every word, every deed. Understanding this, we should start to see the weight of what God's word requires. The very first and foremost command that we are told to keep requires us not to have a stray thought, not to have a stray desire, not to have a stray lust, not to think wrongly about God, not to misrepresent God at any point, and yes, to have all of our affections directed to him. All the time. 
And Jesus can't help himself but be, go beyond the scribe's original question. He tells the man a second one. He says the first one is to hear is to love the Lord your God with your whole being. And the second one, which is like it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. These two are a unit. You cannot separate love from God from love for neighbor. Why is that? Well, whose image are human beings made? In the image of God. Every human being, that means, has something worthy of your love. Because every human being is made in the image of God. Romans chapter 13, after saying pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, a.k.a. the government, Paul follows that up in verse 8 of Romans chapter 13, where he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, I'll add there, that you could ever find in your Bibles, are summed up in this one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor. And therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see here what Jesus is doing. Jesus is providing a concrete scriptural definition to what love means. What makes these two commandments so important? What makes them one and two? That they're summing up something. Where, what are those commandments that are the summing up? Love your neighbor as yourself is summarizing which commandments? Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Have you ever heard of those? Do you remember where those are in your Bibles? That's in the Ten Commandments. You see, the, this, the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of God's moral law, his requirements, the first four pertain between, to God's relationship to man, and the next six pertain to man's relationship to each other. You see, these two things go together because that's how it always has been. We have just the law of God, the Ten Commandments, which go together, love for God and love for all who are in his image. And if we realize that, we realize that this summary has a definition. We could think to ourselves, how do we love God? We worship him, recognize him as him alone. He is alone as God, first commandment. That we worship him the way he says and not copy the worship practice of, of other peoples. That we worship and reverence his name that was given to us and that we worship him one day in seven, verse four. 
And if you are wondering, well, how do I love my neighbor? Well, you don't commit adultery. You don't kill them. You don't hate them. You don't steal from them. You don't lie to them. You don't desire what they have and have ill feelings towards them. That's how you love your neighbor. Jesus here is simply summarizing what the scriptures already teach. In Romans 13 is not the only place we get this. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says that Christians have been called to freedom. And they're told not to use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh living for themselves, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when he gets into what it looks like not to love, he says in verse 18 of Galatians chapter 5, that if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law, but you don't do the works of the flesh. And he names them sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And Paul gives us a warning. He says, I warned you. I told you he said that he was giving a warning. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Maybe it's a newsflash to you, maybe it's not. But Christians are obligated by Jesus himself to keep this law of love. Jesus says himself in First uh, oh, John, not First John, John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments keeps them. It is he who loves me. Or again, in that same chapter, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You see, the law functions the same way. A right understanding, the right answer to understanding the law of God, it functions the same way in the Old Testament as it does in the New you know why I say that? Because in neither case was the law the mechanism for how you achieved a relationship with God. How do the Ten Commandments start? It starts with, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, God redeemed, rescued, and saved, and made a people for himself and he gave them his law, the law of love, love to God and love to neighbor. In the same way it is to function in the New Testament. This is a right understanding of the law, that if you understand this, that the law is not the mechanism by which you achieve salvation, but is the rule of life 
by which Christians are obligated to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're one step closer. And this man agrees. And he, he adds to it the implication of this, of understanding that this law of love, verse 33, means that every other commandment is below it, including whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And here he's quoting uh, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where he says, Don't get your notes out of order. Not a helpful thing. He tells them basically this commandment that the knowledge of God is more important than whole burnt offerings. Love of God, loving faithfulness is more important than sacrifices. That those things, sacrifices and burnt offerings, the way they function in the Old Testament was out of love for God. But if you took away the love, if you took away the love out of the sacrifice, guess what? It meant nothing. Read Isaiah chapter 1 in your spare time to see what God really thinks about people who think that they can just worship God on the outside, externally, but not love him from their heart, not have their worship be an expression of the love they have for God. You know, this is a warning for us too, isn't it? We can be so near to the kingdom of God so much nearer than all the Gentile world, so much nearer than, than our pagan neighbors who worship other gods or who live in whatever sinfulness and redefining love. We can think that because we know God and because we come to a worship service every Sunday, that God's going to be good with us. Or even that because we serve God, and do so many things for him, like sacrifice our time, sacrifice our energy, serving other people, that God's going to look at that and be happy with us on account of our works. That's not the way the law functions. And you might be really close, but you're not in. Look at Jesus' words. He tells them that he's not far from the kingdom of God. What's it going to take? What does it take? If it's not right beliefs, what does it take to go from near to in? I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but he leaves this man on a cliffhanger. And when he asks a question of his own, he asks them this question. Verse 35, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How is he his son? You know what Jesus makes the issue? Jesus makes himself the issue. How do you know you love God? 
And how do you know you love God rightly? You love the Lord Jesus Christ as he has revealed the Father to us. You might know a lot about Jesus. You might know a lot about the true God. You might know a lot about what he requires. But if you don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't love him, if you don't worship him, you'll always remain on the outside. You know, it's kind of surprising, and it always is, and it keeps striking me again and again as we go through this text in Mark chapter 12 of seeing how all these religious experts seem to be so close. The people who know the most yet remain so far away. You know, that story has keeps repeating itself throughout church history. John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. He was, when he was growing up a young man, he went very early to Oxford to train to be a minister of the gospel. He started his own holiness club, which is where Methodism, that name comes from, the holiness club, the, about methods to become more holy. He got together with his small groups of his friends, dedicated himself dedicating himself to prayer, dedicating himself to a study of the word of God. He had people in his group like George Whitfield, famous revivalist of the future. And this man was ordained to ministry. He had such a zeal for the Lord, or so he thought. He went to Savannah, Georgia to proclaim the gospel among the natives. And once he got there, the mission was a failure. He didn't see anyone converted. He fell in love with one of the colonists, this girl who rejected him and married some other guy. So he got on a boat, heartbroken, and started heading back home. And on that boat back home, a storm hit. And it started to rain heavily. The waves from the water started crashing overboard, filling up the boat, and he started to fear for his own life. And he saw a little group out in the corner having a little worship service. Despite the rain, beside the waves, they were singing God's praises, they were praying, and they were joyful. And after the storm, John Wesley came up to them and said, well, why are you guys so happy? What's the source of this joy you had in the midst of a terrifying circumstance? It said, it's because we know the Lord. We know he is our God. We know that he loves us. We know that he cares for us. And we love him. And John Wesley's response is, I'm a minister of the gospel. I know God. He taught a lot of people a lot about him. But then the Moravians, which was that group, said to him, yeah, but do you know God as your God? Do you know Jesus, not just as the Christ, but as your Lord, as your Savior? And he was taken aback. 
he didn't realize that you can know so much about God, know so many facts, and yet not apprehend the truth that God is your God. Know that he died for your sins. That's what trust looks like. That's what serving God looks like. Where we trust that Jesus is not just the God of the universe, that he is our Lord, our Savior, and he will forgive anyone who trusts in him. And he implants in us then something magnificent. He plants in us a heart that loves God, a heart that loves people for who they are, reflections of the image of the God we love, no matter how depraved. And we keep this commandment to love God, not perfectly, but sincerely. And our love for God does not give us faith. It doesn't merit any favor with God, but rather it evidences our faith. And we know that we belong to him and to him alone. I pray that everyone in this room would come to know God, not as just a mere abstract thought, but as your Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed to us that all we need is not just love, All you need is love is too light a word, too meaningless, too abstract. All we need is the love of God, our Savior. We need the love of Jesus Christ, which was poured out for us on the cross. We need that. We need God's love for us. And the world needs our love for them. Lord, we love you, and we want to serve you. And may we be used by you to love our neighbor. Lord, but what we need, and what we need is not just to love anyone, but to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit has enabled us to do that. And now all our sin, our stumblings away from that. That we are so imperfect, yet despite our unfaithfulness to you, you loved us. Lord, may you help us to love you more and more each and every day. Until one day in glory when we will reflect the the holiness, the perfection that you have called us to. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.